Hey everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where an undergraduate philosophy major and its former high school philosophy teacher discuss a variety of philosophical topics in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. I'm Andrew Graziano, and I'm here with the bookworm himself, Derek Parsons. (laughs) Hello. Welcome to episode 47, a sort of year-end episode where we discuss our favorite books we read during 2022. We had a really popular episode last year around this time, and we figured we'd bring it back. But before we do that, Mr. Parsons, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing great. Uh, at time of recording, uh, it is it is not December 27th. So I'm going to tell you what's happening on December 27th when this episode comes out. I will have just returned from uh, Tucson, Arizona, and uh, a long-awaited trip with family and mom to go see the national parks and the Seguro cacti. Uh, mom wants to see the cacti. So if mom wants to see the cacti, we go see the cacti. So anyway, I'm sure we've had a lovely time. And it's Christmas break, so all is well. How are you? That's really exciting. Yeah. Um, I think by the time that this uh, this is some news, by the time that this episode comes out, I will no longer be an undergraduate philosophy major. I will be graduated and doing That's something, right. hopefully. And I'll be at least taking the next semester off to do some work. And the following semester, we will see what happens. I will probably be going to law school. Yeah, that's big time, man. Uh, boy, I feel like we should have some some fanfare around all of that. Congratulations on completing your undergraduate degree, Andrew. Thank you. That's a huge accomplishment. Thank you. It's been a crazy, crazy three and a half years And it's been great doing this podcast for two of them, which is crazy to think about. Uh, (laughs) It is, uh, but but I've really enjoyed it. So so that's that's great. Speaking of a two year episode, Mark, Mister Parsons, I guess we should say that in our fiftieth episode, so three episodes from now, we will be having our two year anniversary, which conveniently falls on our fiftieth episode, and so we figured that we would ask for listener questions for that. If anyone listening has any questions that they want us to answer or anything else, I guess uh, anything they want us to respond to or anything else, please send them into contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Yeah, that's right. We'll definitely get it up on the socials as well. You can contact us through that for questions as well. Yeah, we did this last year and we figured uh, what a, what a good way to, celebrate two years and to celebrate our 50th episode by uh, engaging with the questions that you have. So this is episode 47. So we got six weeks before that 50th episode comes out. So send them in. Absolutely mind blowing. (laughs) I know, right? I mean, I guess we'll reminisce on the 50th episode, but uh, yeah, two years is impressive and 50 episodes is impressive. I don't know that either of us would have foreseen that. But, uh, but anyway, here we are, and we're happy for it. But we'll talk more about that on the 50th. And I guess also, since this is the last episode of the calendar year of 2022, I suppose maybe for a moment we should think back to this year and, and talk a little bit about some of our, our favorite aspects of it. How about you, Andrew? What's some things that stick out in your mind thinking about this last year? Well, I really enjoyed. I think we hit some really cool topics. We were, we were able to get a lot of, um, introductory material done last year where we could start feeling like we could explore some other topics. 
we did a lot more series this this year, which I thought was mm, really yeah. fun. So we could go a little bit more in depth. Uh, I really enjoyed our philosophy of religion series that we did earlier in the year. Um, I also enjoyed our consciousness series that we did very early last year. Um, I thought mm-hmm. both of those were really great. A lot of fun. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I'll get to guests in a second, but I, I echo your sentiment related to philosophy of religion. That was a, a long time coming, and there's yeah. more to talk about with philosophy of religion. We mostly talked about proofs of God and uh, contradictions that come along with the omni arguments or omni omni attributes of God. Uh, the series on Stoicism was fun. I really enjoyed diving into the big three at a little deeper level. Yeah, and. For sure. And then, uh, you know, we just wrapped up this, I guess you call it a four-part series of the uh, Who Were They, and we did the four classical Greek, well, I guess the first episode was the Pre-Socratics, which is a number of Greeks, but uh, but then Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. And we'll continue that particular format uh, next year with a couple of other philosophers. I think that was a nice sort of introductory or entryway into... Uh, into philosophers and their background and biographies and a bit about their theories. Yeah, that was a ton of fun. I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed that. And they're so important, you know, just for the rest of philosophy. And oh, yeah. so it, it was it was great to be able to share that. Yeah. Yeah, and, just, and then there were the guests. I mean, what a wonderful lineup of guests we've had this year. We're not really a guest interview podcast, but we like to bring in guests every now and then, contemporary yeah. philosophers on just kind of what's going on. And we started off with Jack Symes, which was a blast. I feel like we're best friends after. <laughs> after it's a lot of episode. fun. A lot of fun. Really enjoyed, really enjoyed him. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then we had uh, Helen DeCruz to talk to us about thought experiments, you know, thought experiments. I don't know about you, Andrew. I think when you talk to someone who's not a philosophy person about thought experiments, they look at you kind of funny. They're like, yeah. well, that's dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so so having her on to to unpack that for us was great. She was really interesting too. I, I really enjoyed the way that she thought about drawing, just seeing seeing what she mm. come up with drawing was really impressive and not only in the artistic sense, I mean she's a fantastic artist, but also in the sense of just seeing these uh, thought experiments and I thought that was a real treat. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, her her philosophy as art was really fascinating. Then a, a big one for me, I mean, they're all big, but I'm a big fan of Sky Cleary, and she came on to talk to us about her latest book uh, on Simone de Beauvoir, and that was a real thrill for me. Yeah, that was, that was super, super interesting as well. I learned a lot reading that book. I thought it was really interesting, and she's so, so great to talk with, too. Very, very enjoyable conversation. We had the opportunity to interview one of my favorite classicists, I guess. That's what we'll call him, with Robin Waterfield, who uh, we interviewed about his newest book on the complete works of Epictetus. That's a real thrill for me, just with my background in classics. And I really enjoyed going uh, so much more in depth than, than we usually can, uh, just because we have such a, a profound expert on Epictetus. So I, I really enjoyed that. Especially, yeah, so knowledgeable and and just fantastic to talk to. Uh, I'll be honest, a, a little intimidated to talk to him. He's so incredibly knowledgeable. That's the only <laughs> that's the one word I keep coming up with when I think of him. 
wonderful, wonderful interview. Very insightful about translation in general, like what goes into translation. And then, of course, about Epictetus, one of our favorite topics and philosophers to talk about. And then we had Peg O'Connor, uh, the previous episode before this, to again talk about one of my favorite philosophers, and that's William James and his varieties of religious experience and how that connects with Alcoholics Anonymous and the philosophy of addiction. Fun guest. Yeah, I really, really love talking with her too. She was she was a blast and I learned a lot. Um, I'm not the biggest uh, William James fan, but I really, really enjoyed that conversation and, and learning so much more. It made me very interested in the future for future uh, discovery on him. Yeah, so it's been a great year. Uh, we thank you for listening this year and going along on this journey with us. We're really looking forward to 2023. We've already put our heads together and plotted out some early ideas on what we'll be doing in 2023. So we hope you look forward to that. And, and we have some big, big announcements coming up in our first episode of 2023. So obviously, you'll listen to the remainder of this episode. But we'll also see you in 2023. Okay, guys, like Andrew said earlier in the episode, this is something we did last year. Although last year's was just our favorite philosophy books in general. This year, we're going to stay within the boundaries of what we've read in 2022. So our favorite books from 2022, a couple caveats. First of all, the books that we're going to talk about are not necessarily books that were published in 2022, but that we read for the first time in 2022. And you'll, of course, pick up on that as we go. And then the, the second caveat, and I'm sure Andrew feels the same way about this, like we just mentioned, all of them, uh, we had so many great guests on our show this year who have newly published books, uh, and we very well might have chosen some of those books to be part of our favorite reads of 2022. But since we spent extensive time on those books and in individual episodes throughout this year, we thought we would uh, just let those stay on the shelf, if you will, for our, fa for our favorite books, uh, because... Uh, because I think a lot of our favorite books would be episodes we've already talked about. So anyway, there you go. So we're going to bounce back and forth talking about our favorite books from 2022. We're going to kick it off with Andrew. Yeah, this was, this was really tough for a number of reasons. I think most of the reading that I've done this year falls into kind of three categories. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about these in a minute. But it was kind of an exploration with philosophy-adjacent topics, areas where philosophy had deeply influenced the subjects and had kind of left a legacy in there too. So I, I want to preface all my books uh, with that. But the first book is very philosophical. I really enjoyed this book. It's Susan Wolf's 2010 book, I think, Meaning in Life and Why It Matters. This was a collection of a series of lectures that she gave in Princeton for the University Center for Human Values. It's a very prestigious lecture series that's given, it's been given by these great philosophers stemming all the way back for, I don't know, 50 plus years. And basically she gives a account of, you know, what it sounds like, how the, the importance of meaning in life and just discussing what makes a life meaningful in general. And, and 
she has great philosophers who respond to her too. Three great philosophers and one who's a kind of tangential psychologist, we'll say. And so I really enjoyed that. I really have been enjoying um, more modern philosophy recently. The question of meaning in life is one that we are deeply interested in in this podcast. And I think mm-hmm. that the question has kind of been dropped in the past hundred years. You were kind of made fun of it if you were talking about meaning in life, if you were an analytic philosopher in a department. And so I, th- I think it's really cool that she picked it back up and kind of started did the tradition back up again. I think that this is a very readable book. It's very popular, not just in the philosophical world of academia, but I think just in general, it's a very easy read because it's given as a lecture. It's funny. It's thought-provoking. And I think that um, everyone would, and that's a big claim, but I think everyone would <laughs> get value out of checking out it and engaging with this book. That's awesome. So, well, for, so one thing, uh, what you said about the last 100 years in analytic philosophy, it makes me think also of another, well, an essay that we covered uh, in a two-part series earlier this year on Pierre Edo, uh, Philosophy as a Way of Life. Yeah. Uh, he's also a big part of that particular movement, I believe that was in the, in the 80s, 1980s. And, uh, and other philosophers like Alistair McIntyre, that the resurgence of this question of like, what is a meaningful life? What does it, li- what does it mean to live meaningfully? And, and made me think of that particular episode we did. So what are some of the conclusions that you derive from that particular book? Yeah, that's, that's probably important. Um, so she devises, she takes this almost Aristotelian method and she devises, we promised that Aristotelian methods would come back in later philosophy. So here it is. <laughs> you know, uh, back so soon. Yeah, back so soon. So I think the the what she does is she takes these two kind of popular approaches to the to the idea of meaning in life. One is an objective meaning side, where the idea is you should find something in your life that you love and and pursue that to the end. And I well, I guess that's the subjective side, finding something you love. In pursuing that to its end, but she also realizes, and I think this is true, that like you can't just be like, if you love looking at a blade of grass all day and watching it grow, it's probably not going to give meaning to your life. So she comes up with, uh, she combines the two. She comes up with this idea called the fitting fulfillment model of meaning, which combines this idea of an objective project, an objectively good project with a subjective attraction, subjective love for it. Here's a quote. My claim then is that reasons of love, whether of human individuals, other living creatures or activities, ideals or objects of other sorts, have a distinctive and important role in our life. And so love is really at the the driving part of this this, um, theory. And two, the second part of the title and why it matters, traditionally in philosophy, for thousands of years, there's been two things at the center. And this, there's been two things at the center of mean, uh, like what a good life is. Either you're as moral as you can be, or you're as happy as you can be. And so she wants to add a third category to it, that we act, we have motivation, not from happiness, not from being the most moral we can be, but just from wanting to have a meaningful life. I think that's true. I think it's really interesting. 
That sounds fascinating and right up my alley. Uh, before we get to my first book, I got to say one of the problems for Andrew and I is that there's so much good stuff to read. I mean, like, I have stacks of books in my office. I just, I got to stay off Amazon because I hear a good book and I sometimes I'll put it on a wish list, but most of the time I'll just buy it. Yeah. And like looking back at this list, preparing for this episode, actually, I was like, gosh, <laughs> I have all these new books that I bought in 2022. I never got to them because I'm busy reading books I bought in 2021. Yeah. Yeah, it's a problem. You get that, yeah. Sounds really fascinating, Andrew. I might have to put it on my incredibly long list. Yeah, Susan Wolf is great. She's she's a very famous contemporary philosopher. I think she's she's really fantastic and will go down as a as a staple in 21st, early 21st century philosophy. All right, mark it down, folks. Andrew has spoken. So my first book I want to talk about today is called On Consolation by Michael, and let's see if I pronounce this right, Ignatief. Michael Ignatief. That's right. I looked it up. <laughs> Are you impressed? I anyway. am. So the title itself intrigued me. I'm drawn to these texts that have an on in front of a particular experience, <laughs> like, you know, Seneca's uh, On the Meaning of Life. Wait, is that a book? Uh, on, on the shortness of life. Ah, like Seneca's On the Shortness of Life or Seneca's On Anger. And there's, uh, uh, there's lots, of, lots of titles that just have on and then a thing after it. So anyway, this was On Consolation. And you can imagine when you are being consoled about something, it's probably not the best times of your life. And so I wanted to read this book while times were good in my life. Because, of course, as it is with anyone's life, there will be times when I will need to be consoled. So uh, I wanted to read it now outside of that context so I can hopefully kind of gain some things, some insight to what it is to grieve, to suffer from this particular author's perspective and, and how he lays out the book, which is really interesting. So the order of the book is, is a number of chapters, and each chapter is a particular thinker or philosopher. We actually have a musician in here as well, Gustav Mahler. And it talks about either their particular work that they wrote under duress, where they needed some consolation, uh, or scenarios in their life where they needed some consolation. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But the other thing I thought about, actually, thinking of this book, is when I was in Italy, which was, gosh, probably 10 years ago now, we, of course, visited a number of cemeteries, and a constant feature in, on all of these was a particular type of statue that was on top of a tomb in a genre that is called the inconsolable. And it's typically a woman, although sometimes it's children, but it's, it's a statue of someone in tremendous grief, right? They're like weeping over this person who has passed away. Uh, and that's, that's what I think of when I think of being inconsolable. You are just at the, at the edge and I, I thought, of course, I, ha I have to think of COVID in this situation where so many people needed consolation. I can't remember who the quote is attributed to, but the quote that stuck with me is, the, the only way out is through. Right? The only way out of COVID is going through COVID. And that's kind of the overall message of the book. My main takeaway was no one's situation that involves consolation is alike because all of these people he talks about are very different situations, are very different approaches to consolation. There's also no easy answer. 
There's no one solution and no one way to go through it. The message of hope that comes from this book is that you can get through it, whatever that thing is. So like I said, the book chronicles many who endured times and consolation was needed and how they got through it. So a couple of quotes that stuck with me. Well, wait a minute. Before I get to quotes, let me talk about uh, the chapters and who he looked at. So he begins the book with with Job mm-hmm. from the Old Testament. And of course, if you're familiar with the story of Job, uh, everything was taken away from him in what seemed like a very incredibly arbitrary way uh, and for no good reason. So it talks about the suffering of Job. Then a little later, uh, Cicero, the great Roman orator, his daughter died. And gosh, so many parents have to endure that terrible loss of a loss of a child. And so, you know, he talks about the letters on the death of his daughter. We get our good friend Marcus Aurelius has a chapter in here on facing the barbarians, good old Boethus and uh, Consolations of Philosophy, Michael de Montaigne and uh, his last essays on when his body was beginning to fail him and getting old. So many. Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address is one of the sources that he used as a chapter on war and consolation. All the way up to, you know, current times, uh, there's a chapter on Albert Camus' The Plague, uh, which, of course, is very apt in the COVID time. So it's a really fascinating book. Two, two quotes I just want to introduce just real quick. These are both from the introduction. First quote is, to understand consolation, it's necessary to begin with moments when it is impossible. And, uh, you know, you, you pick up one of his books and you're hoping for an answer. And there are times in our lives when consolation is impossible. There is nothing that can console us. And that's really the focus of this particular book, those particular times. I mean, it's kind of a heavy topic. And then the other quote I wanted to bring up, oftentimes we think of comfort. Like when someone is going through hard times, we want to comfort them rather than consoling them. And so he makes a differentiation between these two terms. I just want to read it very quickly. We can be comforted without being consoled, just as we can be consoled without being comforted. Comfort is transitory. Consolation is enduring. Comfort is physical. Consolation is propositional. Mm. Consolation is an argument about why life is the way it is and why we must keep going. So comfort's wonderful, no doubt, and we all we all want it during hard times, but comfort only lasts so long and consolation is the real medicine we need. So anyway, that's my uh, that's my two cents on consolation. What do you think, Andrew? Have I talked you into it? It sounds really interesting. I was looking looking up the book when, when you were talking. It sounds like uh, I don't know. It sounds it sounds like it could be uh, very beneficial. I don't know if I want to include this, but go ahead. So, someone who I know and I'm quite close with recently had a death uh, that was very close to them, and I was wondering when I found out about it. I was just thinking, I don't really know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do for them. I want them to feel better, but I guess difficult to know how to help people since such pain is uh, so internal and, and kind of subjective. Yeah. And so I don't really know what to say, but say here, but I think that books like these that 
think about consolation and might make it easier when maybe not for other people, but just for yourself, uh, provide you some comfort when you're going through something like this. Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. There are times in our lives when words are completely ineffective, not up to the challenge. And uh, sometimes the best thing you can do is just sit with someone through that grief. And kind of to your point, it's, it's the unexpected deaths that really rattle us. You know, when our aged parents or grandparents in their 80s and 90s, when they pass, like it's still sad. But it's very different when, you know, someone dies unexpectedly. It seems capricious. Yeah. Uh, it seems without any sort of logic. And we end up with these big questions, right? The big questions of why. And that's when consolation is really necessary. Being in education for 20 years, I can tell you the sad fact of it all is that every single year of my career, there has been a death of a student, whether it's an unexpected car accident or a suicide or a disease like cancer. And it's tough, man. It's tough. And uh, you want to you wanna help the kids who are going through that grieving process. And sometimes, like you said, uh, words don't do it. So you just got to just got to be there, got to be present. And, and I guess like, you know, back to the book, this is, this is the hard message of it, right? Is that uh, there is no answer to that question of why. And, uh, and that's the challenge. That's why it's, that's why there's a book. <laughs> if it were easy, there wouldn't be a book, you know? And so the, the stories are hopeful. I mean, every story is a tragedy, but in the end it's hopeful because you are able to witness endurance through those hard times and, Kind of the knowledge that other people have gone through it is is helpful sometimes. So anyway, there we go. Boy, I just picked the real cheery ones, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should get to your second book. I don't know if mine are, are, are is much more cheery than that. Uh, oh, great! <laughs> I'm going to be moving to the topic of uh, government. Yeah, much more cheery. <laughs> Part two of my kind of explorations this year have been in, I guess, political philosophy and thinking about government. I have, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I'm thinking about going to law school. And so I wanted to explore that field a little bit more and specifically less political philosophy, but more legal philosophy, I think. I thought it was super interesting. I had some good recommendations. I want to give two here because one of them is just a little lecture that I found maybe inside of this original book. So I don't know if that'll count, but I'll go with the original first. It's just the good old Federalist Papers. Hmm. I read the, I had to read these in high school for AP history or whatever, <laughs> sure. but just going back and, and reading over them. There's a lot of references to classical philosophy and, and political philosophy. A lot of it's drawn through kind of a combination of, of Aristotle's. We talked about this in the, our Aristotle episode, but Aristotle devised this kind of flow of a state. And so basically the founders take right off from Aristotle there and some Roman philosophers too. Mm-hmm. I just really enjoyed looking at those Federalist Papers from the lens of a, a kind of a philosophical background. 
It's not filled with a lot of metaphysics, which I think would be really interesting for legal philosophy, Mm -hmm. Uh, but filled with a lot of ethics, a lot more logic than you would think would be in these books, and a lot about human nature, too, Mm. which is enlightenment times. That's that's not surprising, right? Right. So that was very enjoyable. I'll give a a really great quote, probably my favorite quote in all of um, revolutionary political philosophy. This was um, probably by either Hamilton or Madison in Federalist 51, probably the most famous quote from all of these. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern govern men, neither external nor internal controls or government would be necessary. In naming a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the government, in the next place, oblige it to control itself. And so just total mm. pessimism over um, <laughs> over the fellow man. And Yeah, it's a really Hobbesian too, isn't it? Yeah, very Hobbes. And so I thought that was really great. Yeah. Let me throw this one in there too, just while I, we're on this topic. So this is a lecture from, I think this was included in the book that I, I was reading. It was like a collection, I think, of, of American legal philosophy. There was this great justice, Oliver Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't really know much about his background. He had to have studied a lot of philosophy because his work is it's just it's just purely written with it. Yeah. He grew up with mm-hmm. Ralph Waldo Emerson, mm-hmm. uh, William James. He studied philosophy at Harvard uh, with um, I guess Emerson. Yeah. Emerson was a big Platonist, and apparently... Yes, <laughs> he was. <laughs> uh, this guy... Uh, yeah, apparently this, this guy was uh, uh, arguing against him, and they got in a fight. <laughs> philosopher brawls. And, yeah. Uh, so, philosopher <laughs> brawls, yeah. So um, hmm. I consider this guy probably the greatest um, American legal philosopher. But he has this really cool quote... I thought it, it was just mind-blowing to me at the time, and I, I would really love to share it with uh, this podcast. Hmm. Read the works of the great German jur- jurist and see how much more the world is governed by Kant than by Bonaparte. We cannot all be Descartes or Kant, but we all want happiness. And happiness, I'm sure from having known many successful men, cannot be won simply by being counsel for great corporations and having an income of $50,000 a year an intellect enough to win the prizes needs food besides money. The remoter and more general aspects of the law are those which give it universal interests. It's through them that you not only become a great master in your calling, but connect your subjects with the universe and catch an echo of the infinite, a glimpse of its unfathomable process, a hint of the universal law. That's good stuff. Mm. And that's from The Path of the Law, published in Harvard Law Review in 1897. Very moving to me. Well, I got to tell you, everybody, uh, Andrew and I did not share what our books were before we started this episode. I did not see the Federalist Papers coming. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's great. It's It's a great bit of American philosophy. Yeah. No, absolutely. I love that period of philosophy and politics. You know, one of the things but back in my day when I taught history, one of the things where I was questioned is these these great movements in history were was it, you know, just circumstance? Was it 
Was it actually the people themselves? One thing I always questioned, of course, was the golden age, if you will, of Athens between the Persian and Peloponnesian War, when Pericles was the leader of Athens, and all the great stuff that you think of when you think of Greece was coming about, the science and the literature and the poetry and the philosophy and all of it. You're like, how did that happen at that one time, one place, all of it? And I think the same with the American Revolution. I've always tried to be as critical as I can of the American Revolution and the thinkers. So you're talking, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Adams. Hamilton, yeah. You study these guys and you're like, is it, was it just a product of the time? Was it going to happen anyway? Uh, or was it like the coming together of some people who were just really incredible thinkers and leaders? And I think it's the second. They're, uh, I don't know. It's incredible. Uh, studying the, yeah, studying the, the, the great thinkers and leaders of the American Revolution, it's really just astounding that all that happened when it did in, in the way that it did. So Federalist Papers and Hamilton and, uh, and Monroe, Monroe. Yeah. Yeah. Are all a part of that as well. And, uh, anyway, my, my brief commentary on, on, uh, big movements in history, but yeah, some incredible thinkers. Okay. Well, my turn again. So the ball is back in my court. Uh, I'll try to be a little cheerier this time. So my second book, <laughs> the title doesn't seem terribly uh, encouraging. Anyway, this book was published in 2012 by Jules Evans. The title is Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, Ancient Philosophy for Modern Problems. Here I am again dealing with problems. So I think it's fascinating to think about ancient philosophy still being applicable today. And Andrew and I have talked a lot about this in previous episodes that surround the Greeks and the Romans, that, of course, philosophy dealt with epistemology and metaphysics and all that sort of stuff. But after Socrates, the main thrust of philosophy was to try to answer how to live a good life. And so much wonderful stuff and systems and ethics and philosophies of life come out of that endeavor. And so I, I wanted to read this particular book. I ran onto it. I can't remember what book I was reading. It was another book on Stoicism, and it mentioned this particular book in the bibliography. And uh, so I looked it up, and it sounded cool. And so I ordered it, and here we are. <laughs> oh, another thing that I, I liked about this particular book, it's not just about Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. It's got uh, a number of philosophers that, I was, that I'd heard of, but I was not as familiar with, and it goes in depth in those. But let me sort of tell you the, the layout of the book. So the author approaches the layout of the book as if it's like a class, right, during the school day. And so we have a morning session, we have lunch, we have early afternoon sessions, and then late afternoon sessions. And then just for fun, the appendices are called uh, extracurriculars. <laughs> so the morning session, we get Warriors of Virtue, and that has Epictetus, Masonius Rufus, and Seneca. So there's your, there's your Stoics. Lunch is the uh, Epicurus and the art of savoring the moment. So no doubt Epicurus would appreciate his lunch. Early afternoon session, mystics and skeptics. So this gets into some that I was less familiar with. So we've got Heraclitus and the art of cosmic contemplation, Pythagoras and the art of memorization and incantation. And then we have a chapter on the skeptics, the skeptic school. And then late afternoon session deals with politics, which, of course, Andrew would enjoy. So we got uh, Diogenes and the art of anarchy, Plato and the art of justice, Plutarch and the art of heroism, 
and Aristotle and the art of flourishing. Oh, and of course, there's a graduation. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Socrates and the Art of Departure, so it's about dying well. So anyway, just a really entertaining book. I, I like books that cover a lot of a lot of philosophers, but not in a superficial way, but a lot of philosophers and a lot of theories uh, around a particular theme. And so this theme is just how to, uh, how to live well, but according to ancient philosophy. So one quote I'd like to throw out just real quick. I believe it's from the chapter one. The ancient philosophies we're going to meet certainly offer us a quick and useful therapeutic tools, but they're more radical than that. They also offer us critiques of society and political ideas about how society should be run. And they offer various theories about God, the meaning of life, and our place in the universe. Mm. Self-help in the ancient world was far more ambitious and expansive than modern self-help. It linked the psychological to the ethical, the political, and the cosmic. And either that grabs you or it doesn't. (laughs) I read that, I'm like, yes, let's go. Because I think one of the great things about philosophy is how it explores how things and ideas and theories all kind of hang together with each other. And this is not just like, gosh, self-help, got to be positive about things. No, it gets into the psychological, ethical, political, and the cosmic and approaches that problem holistically through those uh, different avenues. So anyway, very cool book, very readable, uh, Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations by Jules. Evans, go check it out. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, that sounds, Is it on your that list? sounds really interesting and, and, and sounds like a, a good way to get into some other ancient philosophers too, which is, which is pretty, always a cool thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We'll check that book out. By the way, are we putting all of these on, we'll put these on like social media or something, right? Oh yeah. These will be on the website. No doubt. Opendoorphilosophy.com. We'll have all these books listed there for and links to Amazon for you to be able to check those out. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, that sounds super cool. Sounds super cool. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the reasons, I mean, it's one of my favorite books I've read this year, but also one of the reasons I, I chose it is because our podcast is partially geared for people who are not that terribly familiar with philosophy. And this is a great overview. And like Andrew said, a sort of a doorway, if you will, to a number of great thinkers that uh, after reading their particular chapter, you might be like, hey, I want to check them out further. And uh, and off you go down the rabbit hole. These books are really great for things like that. Um, encouraging you to find something that you're interested in and checking it out more. So I think that's that's great. So third theme this year is my uh, interest in... Um, the Renaissance and Renaissance art. By the way, look at you having themes. Like, yeah, you're so good. I'm just like, here's a random book. No, no, you have themes. No, no, no. I think very impressive. I think um, it's just how it goes. It, how it just went this year. <laughs> I, I think this this was just just a fluke. And looking back, that's just how it's gone. But sure, as, we like uh, finding patterns. Yeah, and things. I, I love patterns. Patterns are, are the best. <laughs> as listeners, as longer listeners will know. This summer, I had the opportunity to study an independent project in Florence, um, and that resulted from this interest early last year in Renaissance philosophy. Yeah, I'm trying to think of where to start with all of this. (laughs) What I thought, what really appealed to me about this kind of 
Renaissance era was uh, started from this book by this professor of Italian studies, I think. He might be of intellectual history at a Harvard named Jim Hankins. He wrote this fantastic book. It's called Virtue Politics, Soulcraft and Statecraft in Renaissance Italy. It was very interesting. The idea basically centers around these intellectual historians in the Renaissance time period and how they, how the revival of, I guess it was really political philosophy, but really just classical philosophy is in general, how that revival of that challenged thought in the Renaissance, especially in, in Florence, was really, really interesting to me because I, I don't know, I just thought... As people will know, I was super interested in classical philosophy, and to see that emergence in the Renaissance I thought was really fascinating. And what I thought was even cooler was this, what's the word? It's kind of acceptance, but this um, this all-consuming nature of humanism during that time, not just Mm. into um, philosophy, um, where we see figures like Machiavelli and how that impacts the political nature of the time, but also the acceptance of classical philosophy and virtue by its leaders, and how in turn those leaders would start funding really classical art too that would kind of try to make the city more virtuous. And that's how a lot of this great art started. Now, let me say two things. This book is really, really long. It's 768 pages. So I'm going to give people an alternative to um, a 768-page book, he wrote this really interesting article that's not long at all. It's uh, called How to Build Your Own Renaissance by James Hankins. James Hankins. (laughs) So I think it's a very short, very short book, or very short article. It's put out by uh, the Witherspoon Institute, which is a very interesting uh, institute uh, that concerns itself with like modern virtue ethics today. Really fascinating. Highly recommend it. Here's some quotes. I forget if I found these in this book or from literature that was in this book that I looked up, but here's some great ones. Here's one by Da Vinci that I, he's talking about astrology. This is from a quote from his book on painting. He said, I mean mathematical astronomy, not that false prophecy, which he means astrology, which is means by mm. which fools live. So I thought that was great. <laughs> There's quotes in there. This this was one in there that I really loved from Machiavelli that I, I think he quoted too. This was when Machiavelli, very close to his death, said, I'm living in the country since my fall from favor. When evening comes, I return to my house, go into my study. Before I enter, I take off my rough, mud-stained country clothes. I don my long official robes and thus fittingly attired. I enter into the assembly of men of old times. Welcomed by them, I feed upon the food, which is my true nourishment and which has made me what I am. I dare to talk to them and ask them the reasons of their actions. They kindly answer me. I no longer fear poverty or death. Hmm. So great book, great entryway to Renaissance philosophy. Really, really cool. Very fascinating. Check out the article first. How to Build Your Own Renaissance, James Hankins. Mm-hmm. Just fantastic, life-changing article. Wow, that's awesome. 
for me, the, the Renaissance is another one of those pivotal moments in human history, although not quite as, say, concentrated as the Periclean Athens uh, or the American Revolution time period. Renaissance stretched out over quite a long period of time, yeah. but still one of those really pivotal moments, uh, the rediscovery of or the reapplication of, I suppose, uh, classical thinking and everything else that came along with it, the humanism and fascinating. Hey, I got to ask you, when you're in Italy this summer, did you happen to see those inconsolables I was talking about? Did no, I didn't cemeteries? visit any cemeteries. I didn't. What? I don't think I did. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, that's interesting. I definitely walked They're by They're all over them. the place. I definitely walked by them. I walked in like the vaults and in churches, but I never went inside a cemetery. Yeah. Well, I love it. Uh, that sounds fascinating. You know, Machiavelli takes such a such a beating because of his, I, he does. his book, he The does. Prince. He's always cast as like, you know, this maniacal yeah. guy. It's, he has some really interesting stuff. I think he gets a bad rap, I think. I mean, he's not a perfect guy, but he has some cool stuff, some good, interesting ideas. The Prince is, I I don't know, it is it is a scheming book, but it's in the end really just meant to be a, a way for the people of the city to regain a democracy in the long run. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it advances the conversation about political philosophy. So it's important in that respect. But yeah, I think anyone in political philosophy at one point has to grapple with Machiavelli and the prince, but he does kind of get a bad rap as being like some uh, scheming maniacal guy. He is, you know, maybe. Uh, There's there's more to him. There's (laughs) more to him. And the prince is interesting by itself. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay, well, on to... See, That's that was your last, last one, one, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay, well, on to my last one. This is one I read at the very beginning of the year. It came out in 2020. It is called Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk hmm. by Justin Tosi and Brandon Wamke. So, <laughs> uh, I don't know what it was. It's just... here. Here's my theme. One of my themes last year, I have to have a theme like Andrew... Was I got very into uh, character and virtue books, but like on specific things. So I read a book by Christian Miller called On Honesty, Honesty of Forgotten Virtue. I read that the previous year in 2021. And I read another book by him called The Character Gap. Uh, And then I read this particular book, Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. And I was drawn to it because, not surprising, in our current day and age, although it's been present in every single day and age throughout history, uh, politics, and of course, something that hasn't been around in all centuries is social media. And the idea of virtue signaling, although I don't know if they use that term in the book now that I think about it, but what we're talking about here is grandstanding. Now, Andrew, when you hear that particular word, what do you think of? (laughs) When someone's grandstanding. Uh, trying to win, being a demagogue, trying to win popular support uh, for an issue. I don't know. Trying to be in the spotlight, trying to capture popular attention. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just about. And so like from a moral aspect, I'll just roll out a few quotes here. They say, much of our discourse is so awful. <laughs> I like that word. Much of our discourse is so awful because it consists of moral grandstanding, roughly the use of moral talk for self-promotion. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so uh, it's basically you're putting on this facade 
of being this particular, embodying this particular type of moral perspective in order for your own personal gain, right? So grandstanding. And it says uh, a little further, it says, by moral talk, we mean communication about moral matters, topics like justice, human rights, and more generally, who is morally good and what morally ought Mm -hmm. to be done. So if you think about social media and you think about, you know, we're just coming out of this midterm election cycle, so much posturing, so much grandstanding on these particular, whatever particular issue it is that politicians will think is attractive to their particular constituents. And I'm going to be cynical here and say that, you know, I think a lot of politicians don't even don't even really believe what they say. Sure. It's that there's there's a game plan and a way to get votes and they grandstand on all these issues, uh, oftentimes without any justification whatsoever. Yeah. So whether it's going to be like we're anti-woke or we are against I was going to say CBT, it's cognitive <laughs> behavioral therapy. <laughs> I don't know if any politicians are against uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, CRT. <laughs> What's CRT? I can't even think of it now. Critical yeah. race theory. Yes, critical race theory or, or anything else, right? You, you just take your, take your any hot political topic, abortion, gun control, whatever, and politicians will grandstand about that. So one more definition from the book. They say, this is our bumper sticker description. Mm. Moral grandstanding is the use of moral talk for self-promotion. To grandstand is to turn your moral talk into a vanity project. Grandstanders are moral showboaters trying to impress with their moral credentials. So, I don't know. What do you think? That sounds really interesting. That sounds really, really interesting. Did you, well, you must have a few... um put it on here but it's it seems like do you think that you exited with a different perspective than when you came into the book or did it kind of shed light Mm, that's a good question so i think i came away with a more technical understanding of what grandstanding is i think anyone kind of recognizes it when it's happening they may not know to call it grandstanding they may call it something else but it's just virtue signaling really is is another term for the end of self-promotion one of the chapters I found most interesting was chapter three, and it's titled Grandstanding, a Field Guide. And so it points out a number of different tactics or techniques that people use. And I'm picking on politicians. People do this, yeah. personal people do this all the time in their jobs, in their daily lives, with their families, whatever. It was really interesting, you know, piling on is one of them, yeah. uh, which is just, you know, people chiming in on discussions of moral issues yeah. to, to say nothing more than, yeah. You know, like uh, Twitter and social media is replete with this, you know, some moral issues happening and everyone just piles on it and like, yeah, that's right. And so everyone associates, you know, this particular moral with them got ramping up, which is a often moral talk devolves into a moral arms race where people make increasingly strong claims about the matter under discussion, call this ramping up. And you can see that in an election election cycle for sure. Trumping up, which has nothing to do with <laughs> Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, some people to attempt to establish the moral credentials by displaying a similar degree of sensitivity to moral problems. Often this results in spurious claims about the presence of a moral problem where, in fact, there simply is none. Yeah. So, you know, and other things, you know, strong emotions is another one, obviously appealing to emotions, dismissiveness of, of an alternative side. All that sort of stuff. And then it gets into like the social cost of grandstanding and 
and these types of things. So I think what I came away with was just probably more a, a more nuanced understanding of something that everybody that's a part of everybody's daily life, especially if you're involved in the news cycle in any sort of way. Anyway, very interesting book, I thought. It was the moral perspective on grandstanding that really drew me to it. I thought that was an interesting angle that is that grandstanding is something that is morally vicious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm thinking of Aristotle. I wonder what so if grandstanding is uh, probably excess, what is the golden mean and what is the deficiency of grandstanding? Well, I don't know the word, but uh, you know he would he would want you to stick up for whatever is right when it was right at the right time in the right yeah. way. And then if there's injustice and you're not speaking up about it when you have the means to do so, then mm. that would be the vice. Yeah, so it kind of links to courage, uh, kind of links to moderation and honesty. I guess those are probably the virtues. Yeah, and then I think that there would be some kind of rhetorical thing mixed in there, too. You probably have some kind of duty to mm-hmm. uh, uh, develop your rhetorical skills, be able to exercise those when necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, there you yeah. go. Grandstanding. Read all about it. You can get super frustrated. Oh, and another thing they pointed out, they're like, uh, it's really easy reading a book on grandstanding and you start pointing the finger yeah. at everything. And, uh, you know, the old phrase that your parents said to you when you're growing up, if you're pointing some at someone, remember there's three yeah. fingers pointing yeah. back at you. Yeah. So, uh, one of their things in the book is like, uh, okay, so this will be all these things we're talking about. It's going to be super easy to pick out, <laughs> you know, if you're reading news or whatever, yeah. but just remember you probably do it too. Yeah. And That's part of the project as well. For sure. No doubt. No doubt at all. Well, I think that's it, my friend. Yeah, I think that's that's it for our last episode of uh, of 2022, I guess. Yeah, that was the year. That was the year. (laughs) That was the year in reading. Another year of podcasting. That's kind of wild, isn't it? That's that's absolutely wild. And if uh, (laughs) let us know what y'all thought of thought of the books too, and if you have any recommendations. No promises, but. I uh, would love love to see them. I'll definitely, I'll, speaking for myself, I'll definitely check them out and look into them. Yeah. So make sure you, you check out the website. To be honest, the web designer, which is also me, <laughs> sometimes doesn't get those links up until a day or two <laughs> after uh, the episode yeah. drops. So uh, if it's not there when you look, uh, come back a day or two later and uh, I will have found time in my day to put those up on the website. So Anyway, I guess this is our outro, but we haven't like paused. Yeah, we haven't paused. Should we pause? uh, I guess we're doing it. No, no, I think we're doing it. Okay. Let's just roll. Yeah. Well, um, thank you to Kevin McLeod for the use of his music and and filling in our uh, weird little um, transition points today. So so thank you, Kevin. (laughs) Uh, We need to get Kevin on the podcast. I I forgot if I've said that before, but that's a must. Philosophy of... um, of uh music music design yeah yeah music design and pleasurable music that's right (laughs) yeah i think i mentioned this in a previous episode i was doing something i was trying to find music for something else yeah he's he's all over the place really with yeah with music you know that people can use and it's pretty good stuff need to find out if he's like a if he's fully employed by this or something he must be must be yeah probably rich rich guy yeah hope so I mean, as long as he uses those that wealth, uh, <laughs> yeah, virtuously, yeah, that'd be good. 
Oh, man. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks for sticking around with us for another year of Open Door Philosophy. Remember, you can always get a hold of us at our many access points through social media, with Instagram and Twitter, and through, of course, our website, opendoorphilosophy.com. But also, you can email us at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com about anything. So y'all do it. Let us hear from you. We'd love to know what you think of the show and the ideas we've talked about. Uh, corrections, pushback, whatever. Yeah, anything at all. And remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, you bet. See you later. <laughs>